1: Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week... Emma-Jane Unsworth on her Jerwood Fiction Uncovered prize-winning novel, Animals. Alex Horston on her debut novel, In My House. And some bonus, Naomi Alderman. Emma-Jane Unsworth is a journalist and won the Betty Trask Award for her novel, Hungry, The Stars and Everything, and was shortlisted for the 2012 Portico Prize. Her short story, I Arrived First, was included in the Best British Short Stories 2012. Her latest book, which we're going to be talking about today, is Animals. So, Emma, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me.
3: Thanks for having me. Should I say
2: Emma, or should I say Emma Jane?
3: Emma's fine. I have, I'll have. i tell you why I have the Jane there. It's because otherwise, Emma and Unsworth run into each other, and mm. it's uh, Emma Unsworth, which sounds like a Victorian story. very made. northern, that does. Very it's northern, and also someone might clean out chamber pots. Mm-hmm. So I thought I'd put the Jane in there to give it a bit of a break and make it sound, you know, slightly more... Impressive.
2: Um, Tell us what this book's about. What's the story?
3: It's about two friends who live in Manchester and have been going out together, painting the town red for ten years, and one of them has just got engaged to a man who's teetotal. So not only is there, well, well, she's going to have to move out, so their whole kind of like life is going to change, their whole living arrangement is going to change, but also the fact that he's teetotal and because she and her friend are hellraisers, that means that their whole, you know, everything is kind of threatened and the whole friendship is threatened, really, and and everything is going to change. But what happens over the course of the book is that you realise that maybe the, the narrator secretly wants things too because this friendship has run its course and she's actually a bit bored.
2: But there is that tension all the way through isn't it? because at the same time she is having doubts.
3: Yeah she's got doubts about everything. She's completely anxious and neurotic and paranoid. Partly to do with her lifestyle and the hangovers that come with it but also um, because she's just reached that point I think that a lot of women reach in their early 30s where the, the pressures are on them to settle down, mm-hmm. to calm down maybe you should stop going out so much maybe you should stop drinking so much, maybe you should stop taking drugs. Maybe she stopped smoking. Maybe she should think about having a baby and get married. And so all of that was something I wanted to explore and explode if I possibly could. But
2: well, there's two points to that, isn't there? Because there's also just an idea that there's something wrong with women misbehaving in the first place.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that there's a great judgment put upon women, the older that they get, especially mm-hmm. when they when they do continue to go out and be party, There's something a bit tragic about women who are in their 50s who are still partying. And I really disagree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a judgment that's put on women that isn't put on men in the same way and it's partly biological it is partly mm-hmm. because if you do want to have a family then as a woman the baby is probably going to grow in your family if you're going to do it that way so um so you are going to have to you know stop, curb all those things at least but you know i think it runs throughout women's lives as well and there's a there's a story a media story that i do write about in the book that when i worked as a journalist in manchester came to my attention and and angered me it was when the, all the take that concerts were on yeah. when they'd regrouped and um and the way that the, the female fans and, and the fun that they had going to those concerts, because the women were in the 30s now rather than the teenagers that they were when they that first together, the way that it was reported was so offensive, the way mm-hmm. it demonised um, the women. It was all like, look at the state of them in the pink Stetsons going out. Shouldn't they be at home? That was all the implication. Yeah. Being sick in people's gardens and clogging up A&E. And it was mm-hmm. all this terribly sexist, horrible stuff that made these women just seem like idiots or, or tragedies or just... ...doing something wrong and, and it really, really enraged me because I looked into it, looked into this, the figures... ...and actually there were no more people admitted to casualty on those nights than there were mm-hmm. during football matches... ...which would be traditionally more male-gendered you know, events to go to or Peter K concerts, for example, things like that. But because it was women doing it, yeah. you know, they were instantly demonised and instantly... Because I think society is scared of women continuing to go wild and enjoy themselves... <laughs> and, and, yeah, and that's something that, um, that I really want to fight. And
2: not just women, but who those women are as well. Yeah, every, year, every year, Every I, year I furiously tweet something about the inevitable story in the Daily Mail about all the women pissed out of their minds at Aintree oh, the yeah, day before I know. the Grand We can't National. control
3: them, isn't it? Terrible. Look at the
2: state of these women, how dare they have a good time.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, if, I mean, sure, if someone's been violent and horrible, but, but most of the women I know are wonderful, jolly, garrulous drunks, so why the hell can't they just keep doing what they want to <laughs>
2: So tell us about Laura, who's the narrator, and Tyler, the two friends. Tell us something about their characters, who are they?
3: So Laura is, well, she hates her job. She works in a call centre. She's 32. Um, She wants to be a writer and has been trying for many years to be a writer. Never had much success and also doesn't quite knuckle down to actually do it. Her novel Um, sounds
2: great, though.
3: (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, there's Bacon, um, about a priest who falls in love with a talking pig. I'm slightly taking the mickey out of myself in my previous book, there, mm-hmm. which was about, um, which had some magic realism in it. So, yeah, so she, um, but she wants escape. That's what she wants. She wants freedom and escape. And she's feeling more and more penned in by her situation, professionally, mm-hmm. socially, and romantically and physically as well as, as a woman. And so, so yes, yeah, so that's, so that's her. And then Tyler is a total punk and a total hellraiser and anarchist, really, in, in, in many ways as well, and really wants to shake things up wherever she goes and will always be the one who wants to drop the bomb conversationally, mm-hmm. will always be the last man standing at a party. Um, and, and she wants to maintain the status quo because she's very happy keeping on doing that. Mm-hmm. But actually, as I explored her character, it struck me that... She actually was far more conservative than Laura, even though she would say that she's a liberal, strong mm-hmm. anarchist, you know, and, and want to take that to the limits. Actually, I think sometimes people who who would say, you know, this is what I'm doing and I'm going to keep doing it to the nth degree forever, that's actually quite a conservative viewpoint, and to, especially when you want to keep and contract your friend into mm-hmm. doing that for the duration and won't give them room for manoeuvre. And that's it. Tyler won't give Laura any room for manoeuvre in her new relationship or in her desires for escape, mm-hmm. so that actually becomes oppressive as oppressive as the romantic relationship. So, so yeah, that's where they find themselves.
2: And although, I mean, we've just uh, explained how we, we both believe it's, it's, a, it's a bad thing that women hedonists are seen as somehow... It's, it's worse for women to do that than men. But at the same time, I wanted to talk about why why they're doing it in terms of what have they been you know what life were they sold do you know what I mean how do you end up being uh, a 30 something person the world has changed so much so that, you know they're 30 something people She's has a dead end job all their horizons are basically going out and having a good time mm-hmm. it's almost a sort of reaction against the life that they were supposed to have left
3: yeah, but I also think because it's fun mm. I think they have a lot of fun when they go out together and even though things have reached a point of staleness I suppose in terms of the friendship and in terms of of feeling you're hemmed in by Tyler's demands. Actually, they still do have a great deal of fun when they go out. And I guess yeah, I mean, why did why do they do it? I think because they it, in a way when they go out and get wrecked, it's a holiday from worrying mm-hmm. about what they're doing with their lives or what they're not doing with their lives. Mm-hmm. And and that was a kind of comment I wanted to make. And also, I think it's very easy to get stuck in a cycle of that kind of lifestyle cycle of going out hangover, then worrying about what the hell you're doing with your life, but then actually just going out again rather than... So it is, it is it's a state of denial, and mm-hmm. I do accept that. It is a state of denial for both of them, I think, even though Laura would more readily acknowledge it. But also I think it's the human condition, isn't it? Whatever way we choose to express that. Mm-hmm. I think we all feel like we live in cycles to some extent, and we do all go through the motions. And you do it and do it and do it and do it, and you reach a point and actually then you think, that's enough, mm-hmm. now I break. But until you reach that point... You do tend to live in circles, I do, and, and that's not just related to um, things like drink, that's just kind of like, that's just life. Mm-hmm. You just go through a cycle every day, every year, every seven years, and and then, then you break out of it if and when you need to.
2: And they do, I mean in this book they do do the same thing pretty much in different venues, different towns over and over and over but again. But there's something
3: to explore within the boredom of that, I think. Yeah, and and exactly, it's just to say yeah. repetition and boredom aren't necessarily things to be avoided mm-hmm. or ignored. I think there's lots to explore because there's nuance there, even in these nights out that do feel like they're full of the same catchphrases yeah. and full of the same... This, if you take that drug, you know you will end up in that place at midnight and in that place at 3 a.m. and mm-hmm. in that place at 9 a.m. And And even though there is that... There's something, because of the characters they encounter, they do fling themselves into different situations socially. They do really you know, go to the, the parameters of, of Manchester, which mm-hmm. is you know a brilliant city, but quite a small city in many ways as well. So they do sort of, they find enough new stuff to keep them going, um, and they have done for ten years, certainly.
2: We'll come back to Manchester, but um, Jim, yeah. tell us about Jim. He's Laura's Jim, fiance. Jim is Laura's
3: fiancée even though they both hate that word. And he is a classical pianist who has recently become teetotal um, because that's actually something I've heard happens because um, I know, I know, I I don't know any classical pianists personally, but, but I know friends who've worked with them and they've said, you know, quite often they go teetotal because you literally can't handle a, a hangover or being drunk mm-hmm. on the job. You know, you've really got to... It's so precise and fans are so ferociously attentive that you've really got to get everything everything right and, and the pressures on and if you if your career's taking off which his his career has just started to take off then you know he's, he's just got to commit to that and something something's got to give and, and what has to give for him is is the booze and so even though he and Laura met in a bar mm-hmm. and they, they they've had wonderful times drunk together he's decided to let that part of his life go to focus on his work and it's just whether whether he his and Laura's relationship can survive that decision I suppose given that given her tastes <laughs>
2: Listen to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Emma Jane Unsworth and we're talking about her novel Animals. And yeah, just before we broke, you mentioned Manchester, Emma, and I was wondering how different this book would have been if it was set in London. There's mm. something very... I've only very recently, in the last couple of years, become familiar with Manchester and have really fallen in love with it. It is a, a great town, but very different from London. And the nightlife's different. And I wonder, have you thought how different it would have been if it was set somewhere else?
3: Yeah, I mean, I guess I can't imagine it being set anywhere else. For me, it couldn't have been set anywhere else for two reasons. Firstly, because I knew Manchester inside yeah. out and that's where I was writing this book from. Secondly, I don't think any other city would have put up with these girls actually. Manchester is a radical city and has a wonderful radical history and mm. I adore it for that. And and it kind of it endures <laughs> the, the sort of these women um it tolerates them and celebrates them almost they they always find good company when they go out because that's the kind of place manchester is and i don't think you, you can get away with that kind of stuff in like in certainly no other cities that i've experienced so far in my life but also manchester is a city that's in flux and it, and it was when i was working there a couple of years ago writing this book it's a place of great change and so it was i guess when people talk about Place and setting being a character in a book, the way that Manchester works in that way is that it, it, it extended the things I was exploring in the characters, mm-hmm. in Laura's yearning for change and and to to shake things up and and kind of Manchester is a place where since ninety six the, the cityscape has complete since the it's, it's the cityscape has completely changed and and various other reasons as well so um, so it, it suited it for that the setting was right because it was just like it was an extended metaphor in that way but also in the, in the, the, the city yeah, was, was very characterful in terms of me furthering what I was exploring through the two
2: girls. And it struck me as well, it's also, I mean, the city has changed beyond recognition, but it still remains, fundamentally, a radical city and a working class city.
3: Yeah, definitely. And we
2: mentioned before we started... Um, Zoe Pilger's Eat My Heart Out. Zoe was on Little Atoms last year, and her city is based in London and in the art world and in the rich world. Mm-hmm. And it almost seems it's, they're, they're, they're quite thematically similar mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. terms of uh, a, you know, a main female character who likes a drink, to, yeah. to, to cut it short. But the worlds in which they ha- inhabit are very different.
3: Definitely. I mean, Zoe's book, which I love, is a satire. So it's different in that way. Mine has, has satirical points, but it isn't entirely a satire. Sure. So. I think that the way that... And there is a scene that takes place in London in Hmm. the book when they go to visit um, Tyler's sister and her new baby and sort of see that kind of different world. And we can't let Tyler entirely off the hook because she isn't working class. Laura is, but Tyler isn't. And Tyler is a bit of a trustful kid, really, even though she is... Been cut off from yeah. her family and cut herself off from her dad, who she had a terrible relationship with. But but she's privileged in in lots of ways as well, and, and she she's got this flat that she can live in without having to work too hard. Yeah. She's got you know which her dad has paid, paid for, and, and all the complications that, that come with that. But she is she's you know she doesn't have to worry about going out really and, and making that much of a living mm-hmm. in a way. Laura has more financial worries than than Tyler does. I, but I wanted to use Tyler as a kind of slightly glamorous. Glamorous in a, in, a, in a faded glamour way, you know, like those old sort of music halls where the paint's peeling, yeah. but you can still see the sort of, mm-hmm. you know, the cornices and stuff. Mm. That's Tyler. It's this room we're in there. like this <laughs> room we're in now, yeah, very, very apt. Um, but yeah, that's Tyler for me. There's something kind of faded, kind of Hollywood glamour about it. Mm. So she's in a kimono, smoking a fag, but her makeup's all down her face and yeah. there's stains on her kimono. So she's sort of, yeah, there's something kind of like. Old, rich about her, I suppose, in, in that way um, and and she is drawn to the sort of the underbelly of of life she 's drawn to the dirt she 's drawn to hanging out in the grottiest places that she possibly can um, and yeah that's but she 's not working class and i, I would I, yeah even though it makes sense to me that she's in Manchester, and and it makes sense to me that Laura's attracted to Tyler as well for that side of Mm -hmm. her because of seeking escape and something a bit different to what Manchester has to offer in many ways, I suppose. The exotic nature of Tyler um, was something that, that I suppose makes it quite at odds with with, um, with, with the working-class model uh, you know, of, of the city, Such an, in, an old industrial city such as Manchester. You've got these two layabouts who are basically just poncing around town, mm-hmm. getting drunk and philosophising and being idiots.
2: I wanted to talk about, I guess, research would be the, uh, would be the <laughs> word. You've already mentioned how familiar you are with the city, but yeah. this book is full of fantastic passages of you know, great nights out and the sort of terrible... Not morning, but day and half of the next day <laughs> afterwards um, seems like you know banknotes drying on the uh, on the radiator and things, and so how much how how well do you know? <laughs> Are you know asking that me well? whether i have
3: taking drugs? No, Is that so how how well how
2: familiar <laughs> with those nights? Out? Well, uh, uh,
3: uh, well, okay, <laughs> here we go. So yeah, sure. There's a lot that I drew on from life and lots of kind of characters that's, and scenes too mm-hmm. that started out in my experience of reality and and, and lots of things I stole from funny things my friends had said and just from crazy... Places. See, Manchester's great for this as well. You end up in some really weird places on mm-hmm. nights out. Really random, strange um, things. And, and I just thought, you know, literally it was so good you couldn't make it up. The truth was better than the fiction. So strange strange incidents that I did just kind of, yeah, write up pretty much verbatim. But what I would say is that even those scenes have to do something within a novel. They're not just set pieces. They, they can't just be, you know... I, I'm writing something that was 300 pages long and so the overall story arc has to work. And to make that work, those set pieces have to have sense within the story. And, and even the characters that started out in life um, had to grow away from life, in a mm-hmm. way, to work in the book. What I, the only thing that I would say remains true, in inverted commas, obviously, but, but I would say that the emotions that I'm exploring the worries of Laura and and the things that they go through and the things that their friendship goes through, that's the truth. That's the thing of this book that comes directly from me onto the page. All mm-hmm. those those emotions and then, yeah, that didn't really go through too much of a filter even in terms
2: of fiction. And just one final thing for me then, and then I'd like, to, I'd like you to read a bit of the book for sure. us. I mentioned um, Zoe's book earlier mm-hmm. and... It's difficult to pin this on, you know, that two books don't necessarily make a movement. But are we seeing do you think there's more books out there now about women badly behaving in this sort of way?
3: I don't know. I mean, I was very grateful that the book got. It felt like it did, kind of catch a wave of, yeah, of, of books about women um, behaving in in ways that might normally not have made it through into into attention. Or, you know, and. And I suppose, but but more than that, not just about the behaving badly, but things like, I think Zoe said in an interview, things like women having an existential crisis, Mm -hmm. which would normally be male territory, because whenever it's about, something's about a woman, it has to be related to a relationship or, you know, something something like that. And so I think just like the lonely points in Animals where Laura is really going through dark nights of the soul and and on her own, I wanted, yeah, I, I do feel like that is something that I want to read more about women feeling completely alone Mm -hmm. and how do you make sense of yourself as a woman and as a person if you have no biological purpose traditionally as in you're not doing the baby thing Mm -hmm. you you know and you've lost all society for one reason or another and you have no sense of fulfillment um, in your work and your friendship's threatened too and so I was grateful that, that that the book got yeah, caught that wave and, and and was put alongside books like Zoe's. But I don't know. I mean, I think you look at... The, there's, there's been women writing fantastic books about, about behaving badly and female characters behaving badly throughout history. You know, you, you can trace this sort of anti-heroine, if you like, way back. Um, and I wouldn't want to not acknowledge um, those great writers, some of whom are my favourite. And, and
2: so, so well, yeah. Like what? What sort of thing? I mean, cos I'm I think thinking... Like Jean <laughs> Rees. But are they, they're not necessarily unapologetic in this same way.
3: You mean mine isn't apologetic? Yes. Or you mean theirs isn't apologetic? Theirs isn't
2: in the same way. Oh, so
3: you mean... OK, well... But Perhaps
2: that's a new thing, that this is, like, you know, unapologetic about it. Yeah, yeah. There doesn't have to be some sort of psychological thing behind somebody's behaviour. It's not, like, a function of...
3: Oh, OK, I get what you mean. So it's like there isn't it, there isn't a moral kind of... Yeah. Yeah, OK, and that that is actually important. I di- I did want to... I didn't want to write a cautionary tale and I know what you mean there actually and in that I didn't want to um, say that these women are going out lording it up and being hedonistic therefore they should have to be punished which Mm -hmm. is what I guess there is some punishment there's some sense of punishment in the past perhaps um, which I didn't want there to be in this so even at the well I won't talk about the end of the book but at the end of the book um, there's no sense of punishment or, a, or kind of... Yeah, she doesn't go off and have a think and change mm-hmm. her ways because I didn't want to write that book, and I don't think that's realistic either.
2: Um, and indeed, all the people that she knows from the past that have are presented very much yeah, in a yeah. you know, in a cautionary way. <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah, true. And I think that the, what bothers me about that is Stasis, and I guess mm. that book, the, the book is, is about a character who wants to change and grow and move like all living things, mm. and so Stasis is the antithesis of that. And so any kind of I guess you know if you're an addict it's very different that's why I was very specific about these girls not being yep. addicts they're not they use drugs and drink recreationally um, but neither of them are addicts and that was that was really important because that in itself is obviously some you know mm-hmm. a static situation you've got to get out of it you can't be like that so they're not at the mercy of those things and so so yeah I think that I wanted to to write about characters who were Having a great time and, and then even though they do punish themselves in a way in that the hangovers are brutal um, and they do sort of like have those really horrible 4am ground zero moments, despite all of that, that's not the problem for them. The drink and the drugs, it's not the real problem. The mm-hmm. real problem is in the people that are around them and what that's the effect that that's having on their lives. OK, well,
2: let's... Um I'll just
3: read from the beginning, yes. shall I? Yes, yes. OK. OK. So, the first chapter is called White Piss Good, Amber Piss Bad. Good rule to live by. Thank you, yeah, it's one I try and live by. You know how it is. Saturday afternoon, you wake up and you can't move. I blinked and the floaters on my eyeballs shifted to reveal Tyler in her ratty old kimono over in the doorway. Way I see it, she said, glass in one hand, lit cigarette in the other. Girls are tied to beds for two reasons. Sex and exorcisms. So, which was it with you? I squinted up at my right arm, which felt like it was levitating, but no, nothing so glamorous. The plastic bangle on my right wrist had hooplared over a bar on the bedhead during the night, manicling my hand and suspending my arm over the pillow. I wriggled upwards to release it, but only managed to travel an inch or so before a strange, elasticy feeling pulled me back. I looked down. My tights, or rather the left leg, I was still sluttishly sporting the right mid-thigh, had wrapped itself around a bed knob, I tugged, no good the knot held fast get that for me would you, I said she'd moved across the room and was leaning against the wardrobe her wardrobe, her room we'd been out, had we been out a montage of images spooled through the brain fog fizzy wine, flat wine, city streets, cubicles highly experimental burlesque moves on bar stools Tyler took her time looking for somewhere to put her cigarette I knew she was really savouring the scene this was one for the ever-burgeoning anecdote store to be wheeled out, exaggerated and relished on future nights that would doubtlessly end in similar indignities. Hey, remember the time you tied yourself to the bed? Killer. Where did you sleep anyway, I said. I didn't sleep. I fondled it on the back lawn with a spritzer and my shades on. Fonzing it was making yourself feel better about things, a.k.a. the inevitable existentials, by telling yourself that you were cool and everything was fine. We also referred to it as self-charming. It had a 55% success rate depending on location and weather. What time is it now? I asked. Tyler tugged at the knot, raised an eyebrow and threaded the tight leg into a straight black line which she held taut to show me. Half past five. And what time did we get in? She pinged the tight leg at me and held up her hand. I thought she was saying five, but no, she was saying no. No forensic autopsies. I nodded. The effects of the day's self-charming were stable but critical don't think about endings don't look down there were rules that had to be obeyed in order to guarantee a horror-free hangover no news no parental phone calls some fresh air if you could tolerate the vertical plane sitcoms carbohydrates i ran my swollen tongue over my unbrushed teeth a farmish smell furriness how do you feel she asked like an entire family of raccoons is nesting in my head nesting raccoons how nice for you "'I've got two bull seals fucking a bag of steak.' "'I sat up. Woof. liquefying Head rush. "'I looked down and caught sight of the prolapsed duvet "'on the floor by the side of the bed, "'its insides lolling between missing buttons "'of the striped cotton cover. "'I squinted at Tyler. 5 2 with cropped black hair sprung into curls. "'Face like a fallen putto. Deadly. "'She gripped her fag between her teeth "'as she opened a kimono and retied it tighter. "'She was wearing knickers but no bra. "'A bold move for the back garden in March.' She pulled the fag from her teeth and exhaled. I know this will only concuss you further, she said, but I'm getting
2: excited about the Olympics. I've been talking to Emma Jane Unsworth and we've been talking about her novel Animals, so Emma, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me about it. Thank you, Neil. It's been a pleasure. I'm Lee Rourke. You're listening to Resonance FM and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. After 15 years writing strategy for advertising agencies, Alex Horston took a break to go back to university and her first love books. She completed a Masters in English and started a PhD, but put it aside when the idea for her first novel surfaced. She's currently working on her second novel, but it's that first novel we're going to be talking about, which is In My House. So, Alex, thank you very much for taking the time to tell me about it. Um, No
4: problem, hello.
2: So, tell me what In My House is about. What's the story?
4: Well, it's the story of a character called Maggie She's 57 years old when we meet her And mm-hmm. she lives in Queen's Park with her dog And she lives a quiet sort of life um, She keeps herself to herself She has a couple of well-chosen um, friends Who she walks with But she even, you know, she keeps those people at arm's length And we meet her when she is on her way home From a walking holiday in Mallorca She travels through, passes through Gatwick She's queuing for the passport control She goes to the loo And while she's waiting there A young woman behind her mouths a single word, help. Now in that instance, Maggie chooses to help her. Um, It transpires that this girl, Anya, has been trafficked and Maggie's act frees her, basically. Um, Now Maggie returns home and intends to re-tuck that away and just continue as she was. But that's not going to happen because Anya wants to get in touch. They meet... Ostensibly, so Annie can just thank her for this generous gesture, but a friendship begins to grow between them. And the book is really the story of this strange and unlikely friendship between these women and also across time we begin to understand quite why Maggie lives such a sort of quiet and and solitary
2: life Mm -hmm. and there's also there's a bit of press interest as well and again this is now a world of Facebook and Twitter and what have you and social media and this is something that that Maggie's thrust into which obviously goes against her goes against her instincts somewhat
4: It is, yes. I mean, as we find out over the course of the novel, there are very good reasons why she wishes to remain private. But yeah, I was interested in the ways in which we can unwittingly find or start to occupy a public space quite Mm -hmm. against our choice or will and what you can do, the extent to which you can really avoid that in, in, in these days. So yes, Anya Maggie rather is a character who is in no way comfortable with any of the um, intrusions of of, of social media, but it's a way to sort of explode. Another way to explode and explore her the invasion of privacy.
2: So Maggie Benson, she's the the narrator Uh of the novel, a somewhat perhaps a reluctant narrator as well, Mm. even though the book's in the first person. And Anya, the girl that she rescues, I mean, potentially is a a much more colourful character Mm. with a more exciting story, Mm -hmm. and yet.
1: Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: You've chosen to write the book about Maggie, mm. 57 years a woman, which is, is probably a bit unusual these days, or was that a deliberate choice?
4: Well, it wasn't really. I mean, I knew nothing when I started about the marketplace and publishing <laughs> and, and what was interesting or sellable or not, beyond what I, as a reader, became interested in. But the character of Maggie really struck me in, in, in a way that no other character or idea has done since. When I was listening weirdly enough to my mum and my brother-in-law have a disagreement and my mum was saying it was about the extent to which people can ever really change and my mum felt that yes a person can change entirely dependent upon the circumstances and the situations they find themselves in. But my brother-in-law said no, we have intrinsics and core values and things that are essential to us that really mm-hmm. hold true pretty much whatever life throws at you. And as I was listening to that, I was just so interesting, you know, I wasn't quite sure where I stood on this. And really the character of Maggie came into my mind at that moment, who is really, she wants to believe my mum's point. She wants to think that you can start again and there is a fresh page. But the conversation of the novel, really, is their argument. To what extent, can you ever turn your back on the past? And what do we carry forward? And what are the intrinsics that we can never throw off? So, yeah, she was... Later down the line, I sort of thought, oh, goodness... People are going to like this character she's a bit prickly, she's wry, she can be a bit sarcastic, but mm-hmm. I, I personally I really like her I think yeah, she's, she's a raw. great character I think she's funny she keeps it hidden you know she's not everything isn't out there on a plate like so much contemporary mm-hmm. culture is, but over time you know over the course of the novel I think we we begin to find out more about her
2: and so Anya who's as I said it's Maggie that narrates mm. the story mm. so we see Anya obviously from Maggie's perspective mm. and therefore she's a bit elusive, but she is. tell her something about who Anya is
4: well Anya is 19 Um, she's been trafficked but the book is very much not about sex trafficking Mm -hmm. Um, and really she came into my mind as somebody that would challenge this sort of carapace that Maggie's built around her there are I mean I will let the reader decide as they as they go through the book but there are echoes of Maggie's daughter there are moments when they become very intimate, um, obviously not sexually intimate, and what Anu is is a dispossessed, lonely, powerless young girl new in a city, mm-hmm. and that is the reason why you know she is able to get, or she would even want to, get so close to Maggie. So, I mean, above all, I wanted her to be a, a teenager in a new place. I didn't want her just to be a victim, I didn't want her just to be you know, this person that's had this terrible experience. Mm -hmm. So that was a hard job, actually, because I wanted to be true enough to her experience, but I didn't want her to be a typical victim.
2: Um, And you say it's not strictly about sex trafficking, Mm. but you you must have... Research that world. For background. I did.
4: I did. Yes, I had. I had a brilliant person that helped me called Zoe Gardner at Asylum Aid, mm-hmm. who tried to explain to me the vagaries of the system, which is totally impenetrable. Mm-hmm. There's no typical case. But I spoke with her in the process of writing the novel, and she read it an early draft and was able to help me get stuff factually correct. There are obviously many, many stories online about people to whom this has happened. I read. I hope enough. But what I wanted to do was. Just to use that then as a, as a sort of springboard and then just try and invent or uncover the mm-hmm. character of Anya alongside sort of of what I knew and I think that's certainly the line I tried to tread with research you've got to gotta know enough not to muck it up but, yeah. but sort of wear that learning mm-hmm. lightly so that the sort of emotional truth of the person yes. that individual comes through,
2: but the um the, the I guess the bureaucracy mm. of the after mm. after life of Anya's experience mm. is part of the book as well. It is
4: part of the book. I mean, Anya is very private as well, and as you say, this is a book in Maggie's voice. Mm. So Maggie and therefore the reader is only exposed to what Anya chooses to tell us. So again, this is there. There are parallels between these two women who are, who are wanting to start again and not wanting to constantly revisit what went before. Mm-hmm. So, yes, there's there's some that you will, come, you will rub up against some of the process in the book. I'm Kate Hamer. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
2: Now, Anya becomes part of Maggie's life. Maggie mm. becomes somewhat dependent on mm, her, perhaps, yes. as well. And they become very close. But she also becomes her... Help, I guess. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, ironically, I mean, it's obviously nowhere near as bad, Mm -hmm. but, you know, considering that she's someone who was being trafficked into this country, Mm -hmm. we could perhaps, you know, sort of explore how she might be exploited by Maggie as well.
4: Yes, and I think that is one of the things, I mean, it's a very shaded and complex relationship between the two of them. And as I started writing it, I actually didn't know, I didn't have a sort of idea in my mind that I was trying to sort of communicate. So it unfolded on the page Mm -hmm. as the reader reads it. And it does evolve into some grey and slightly uncomfortable areas. And one of that, as you say, is the idea of payment. But also emotionally, Maggie asks the question, am I using Anya? Mm -hmm. You know, is she meeting a need that I have that is not about reciprocity it's just about you know fulfilling something a a whole that I that I have in my own world so yeah the questions of dependency and uh, manipulation and who is using who are kind of important in the book I think.
2: I mentioned it's it's your debut novel Mm. although it certainly doesn't read like a debut novel and in fact It wasn't strictly a debut novel.
4: (laughs) I can explain why. (laughs) No, very much. It was actually my first published novel. Um, I do have another one, an earlier one, rotting, hopefully, in a bottom drawer, as I think many people do, actually. The Mm -hmm. idea that these debut writers, this has sort of been, come straight out in one magnificent draft. I think a lot of people have got years and years of work Mm -hmm. behind them. So, yeah, my experience was that I, as you mentioned um, in the early part of the interview, I went back to university... I did an English degree, a, a master's, n- not in creative writing, um, mm. in literature. And really the time, just having time, having headspace, I'd had a job in advertising and two young kids, but suddenly there was time, first time in, you know, forever. Yeah. And really, I, you know, ideas started to surface and I began to write on the side, a bit of a guilty secret, didn't tell anyone. I think a lot of people have that experience as well, you know, they just don't want to quite come out mm-hmm. as a wannabe writer or a writer. And yeah, my first novel, I think was that novel that people talk about when you're talking, <laughs> it was about advertising, funnily enough, yeah. you getting a lot of stuff, your own personal issues, and what you have been about your life mm-hmm. off of your chest. But I did it, I completed it with the help of, Gold Dust, which is a brilliant writer's mentoring mm-hmm. scheme. Um, and then I did what everybody does started writing these terribly tricky letters to agents that you're agonising over, and your um, synopsis and your one line mm-hmm. elevator pitch. And it all went off, and really, I spent a year. Getting the odd bite and, you know, someone would phone back and like this, but not that. And it was tantalising enough to sort of keep me in the game. Yeah. Whilst absolutely destroyingly, gut-wrenchingly awful, you know, a year on when in the end I sort of thought, oh, God, I'm going to just, you know, I'm going to have to bin this. But in the meantime, which I would advise to anybody in the same situation, I started writing something else. And that was this. And to be honest, as soon as I started, it was apparent, Mm -hmm. this is better. So I've learned stuff. I mean, it's hard, it's painful to put by, you know, a year and more work. But, you know, it, you learn.
2: But would this book have been this book if you hadn't put in that? Definitely not.
4: Definitely not. It's a bit of a pl- plonky metaphor, but I, you know, it's like when you do your, up your first house, yeah. you just, you do it, and then you come back, you go, I would never put Lou there. The Lou mm-hmm. doesn't go there, you know. And there is really obvious sort of structural and, you know, craft learnings mm. That you can do first time. I'm not, you know, that you just, you know, not to do again, at least.
2: However, you are now a published novelist with a book that's out under your belt I mean might that change people's perspectives on the other one or at least
4: well it's interesting yeah maybe I don't know
2: could it be you know, reworked have you got I mean is there a, is there a novel in the advertising world that's <laughs> going to come out at some point well here?
4: Mad Men has been since and maybe, I don't <laughs> know I can do as good job as that I don't know I don't know I think, it's, I think it's in the right place to be honest in the bottom drawer
2: and I said that you're working on, on a mm. second novel which mm. I presume there's not a great deal we can say about it but tell us something
4: well, it's another female protagonist, she's younger, she is in her 40s and she's in the middle of family life. So She's got three kids, her parents live by, it's set in London again. And this time it is about a missing person, basically she's, she has a feckless and very adored brother. She throws him a 40th birthday party and the next day he's gone, he's done a bunk. He hasn't left a note but he, he's gone. And really that act <laughs> throws a grenade into... Our family life and we begin again secrets lies passion <laughs> so yeah it's it, i think it's i think it fit, i think there's going to be some tonal similarities but um my concerns are the same difficulty of other people how we can live with others and you know be ourselves Um, But yeah, it's a new cast and hopefully people will like it.
2: And when can we expect to see that? Oh goodness, I don't know.
4: (laughs) I don't know. I'm about three quarters of the way through a first draft, so I'll get it to my agent and my editor. I don't mind showing early work.
2: But this is, it's the second book of a two-book deal. With Facebook, yes, yes, yeah. exactly. So, I'm working so it, it is the cool. we will see
4: it. Oh, we will, see well, let's hope so. I don't know <laughs> I don't like it. That remains to be seen. But yes, we should see it. I hope, well, it'll be the paperback of this. So maybe next year or a little after that.
2: I'm going to get you to read a bit mm. of the book, Alex. But before we do, I'll just ask one more question and then we'll finish off with a bit of the book. It's been out for about a month, so mm-hmm. how is it how is it going? What's the reaction been?
4: It's been fine. It's been good. I've had some good reviews from the broadsheet, which is brilliant. You know, because you don't always necessarily ex- expect mm-hmm. that. So largely, the, in the in the industry, it's been good. And I've the bloggers have been great. You know, I've, I've had some really interesting reviews actually from bloggers who put a lot of time in. And you know, people mm-hmm. write an essay on your work, and you don't find that anywhere else. So I've been really, really delighted and actually really surprised you know to in some of the things that people find and I has made me think differently about mm-hmm. um my work I mean Goodreads and Amazon is not always easy not everybody likes it so there are I'm not gonna lie you know you mm-hmm. get people that don't and that's hard that is it's hard to read but it's part of the process and I'm trying to begin <laughs> I was fearing manically between elation and kind of high drama, mm-hmm. whenever someone said something good or bad. But I think that I'm trying now to walk a rather more even sort of path through the middle and take it on the chin and not get too hyped if it's good and not to get too distraught if it isn't. Um, because I think it's the only way. It's the only way to get through this unscathed.
2: <laughs> okay, well, let's uh, let's hear a bit of it in my house. Though.
4: Okay. This is from the beginning. As I mentioned, um, the action starts when Maggie arrives at Gatwick. So she's just got off a plane now and she, she should be heading for passport control. I headed for the ladies. The sight of my face in a public laboratory mirror is always a surprise, something I put down to the lighting, but a distraction nonetheless. There was a moment or two spent glancing at myself in each new panel as the line moved forwards. I watched the other women look at themselves special faces for their own reflections. Their lack of self-conscious startled me, their absorption in the task. They couldn't all have someone meeting them off their planes. Some surely would merely return to whoever it was they left outside, an everyday person, holding their spot. I felt my own dislocation from that and was fine with it. Then my attention was free, and almost instantly I had a sense of the person behind me. It was her breathing, short, hard and pulsed. She was panting almost, giving off an animal panic that I felt in an answering surge of adrenaline. My first thought was some kind of anxiety attack, and then that she'd done something bad, left a bomb. I looked back to the mirror and found her there. It was clear that she meant to tell me something. Her face was locked, its lack of response in breach of every protocol of civility. It was like standing in front of a painting, knowing that there's meaning, hidden but suggested, if only you knew the language of the thing. A few seconds of this blank exchange and she turned, the girl, twisted her upper body round, deliberate eyes on me till the last, and whispered close and brief behind her. The woman she spoke to gave a flick of a nod. The girl left the line and walked past me, close enough that I smelt new sweat. She went to a sink, bent deep at the waist and looked up at her face. She viewed herself differently from the previous woman, up close and frank, something brutal in it. She filled cupped hands with cold water and threw it at herself. Darkening the roots of her hair. Behind me, the older woman watched. The two were dressed the same, clothes near enough to typical if you squinted blue jeans, bright tops with zips and hoods. But look again, and you could spot the differences colour and cut slightly off. I surprised myself with that acknowledgement. No branding or logos. Cheap, not high street cheap. Cheaper than that. There was a similarity in their colouring, a thin milky paleness of skin, a shared ethnicity perhaps. The hair was dyed a similar red, family even, surely not friends. Behind me, the woman's phone pinged and the girl's eyes were back to mine. In that second, they flared and I saw her fear, unmistakable. The keys of the woman's mobile clicked and she hissed as she typed. The noise of air sucked hard through her teeth. She was still tapping when the phone rang in her hand and she answered in a language I didn't recognise. In the mirror, the girl mouthed, Help.
2: I've been talking to Alex Halston. We've been talking about her novel *In My House*, which is out now from Faber and Faber. So, Alex, thank you very much for telling me about it. Thank you.
0: Tom Barbash and you're listening to Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture.
2: So I'm talking to the writer Naomi Alderman again, and Naomi, what have you chosen to talk about this time?
5: Hello just finished reading this really fantastic book by tim parks teachers to sit still uh, a skeptic search for health and healing is the subtitle and i had heard about this from multiple sources over the years and people had talked about how good it was and you know how it is you kind of hear about a book until there's a sort of tipping point and you suddenly go and get it and i have devoured it in two or three days even though i wanted to spend longer on it because it was just so good and it's about, it's memoir really, it's about Tim Parks in his 50s starts to suffer with bladder pain, pelvic pain and he thinks it's his prostate and he goes to see various doctors and consultants and they do scans and they say actually your prostate's looking fine, we can go in and do the surgery anyway which often gives people relief and at the point that he's sort of about to embark on some probably unnecessary surgery he comes across he's really at the end of his tether as one can be with physical pain and and with chronic conditions it's just debilitating he comes across a book on the internet which just the title of it strikes him it's called a headache in the pelvis which is about this idea that the pains and the physical problems that we suffer aren't just about the body they're also to do with the mind which is something that i'm very interested in we have this rather odd idea I mean, it's really a religious idea, actually, that the mind and the body are completely separate and the body is somehow less good than the mind. You know, the mind is what will survive of us when we go to heaven, whereas the body is of the earth and will return to the dust. It's peculiar. I mean, I suppose it's an idea about uh, eternal life and we know that bodies decay. So the only bit of us that could possibly get eternal life is some kind of mind. But... Mm. Um, so Tim Parks embarks on a journey of meditation and awareness, and in the end, oh, I mean, I can't really spoil this book. You can't spoil it. The journey is is what it's about, not about the end, which in fact is the same with meditation. In the end, he he, he comes to a place where he's able to say that those pains he feels somehow were good, in that they led him to something really interesting and wonderful i also really liked even though everybody else liked it which makes one feel bad about liking it i really liked i really liked the meditation section in the middle of eat pray love the eating part the italian eating fine the falling in love at the end fine what i found really astonishing in that book was the meditative journey the journey towards integration and acceptance and this book really gave me some more of that and i just wanted to kind of pick out a couple of bits one is from right at the beginning where Tim Parks is talking about his father who was a preacher and I think often people who have come from a super religious background as indeed I have to extricate yourself from that you have to do away with all sort of superstition you have to say oh it's all nonsense and then at a certain point you have to accept that it's not or or like it's quite hard to but it's good to accept that maybe there's more There's more to the numinous than just whatever religion it was you were trying to escape from. So right at the start, he's talking about his own writing. And he says about his father. My father read the Bible and wrote his sermons. He told you what was true and how you must behave. Rhythmically, persuasively, the way politicians do and the pundits of opinion columns. The people who know everything and are sure of themselves. My novels have tended the other way, suggested how mysterious it all is how partial anyone's view, how comically lost we all are. But even this is preaching of a kind. The fact is, as soon as you start with words, you're locked into a debate, forced to take a position with respect to others, confirming or rebutting what has been said before. Nothing you say stands alone or is complete in the present. It has its roots in the past and pushes feelers into the future. And as we grow heated, marking out our corner, staking our claim, We stop noticing the breath on the lips, the tension in our fingers, the pressure of the ground under our toes, the tick of time in the blood. Oh, it's so good. Now, he is a really good writer, first of all, a really good writer. And it's really, it's part of the concern of the book. It's something that really speaks to me, which is about how words influence the way that you think about the world and the way you you experience the world and that idea that words trap you in opinions and somehow opinions are always wrong right whatever your opinion is there's always some kind of counter to it you have
2: said that you love this book, and there are many reasons to love it, one of which may be the fact that you're also a writer, so I want to talk about how that resonance is there for is Is there something more to this book for somebody who is a writer?
5: yeah I mean I think it's something there for you if you're there's definitely something there if you're a writer, there's probably something there if you're a reader, you know so if you're the kind of person who's interested in books and the way that books are put together, and the confusions that are in the mind of a writer when they're putting them together, I think this book will have a lot for you. I wanted to do another bit from the end because he starts off right at the beginning. He's talking about his father and sermonizing in his own novels and opinions. And then right at the end, he has set an examination to his students in translation, set them to translate a piece of Christopher Hitchens. Obviously, a man with a lot of opinions. And, And he talks about Hitchens's prose. He says the prose invites a fight. The words are jumping up and down, making rude gestures and waving fists. Perhaps this is the problem with so many invitations to get involved in the world. They're inviting you to join in a fight without it's being important what you're fighting about. I thought, oh, that is exactly Twitter, isn't it? That is exactly Facebook and its comments on the Internet and its newspaper articles. And what he's talking about is the way that that affects our bodies, actually, that our bodies aren't separate to us. We hold all of this anger that's somehow fermented by this very verbal culture we live in we hold it in our body and so the book is about sitting still and being quiet and how little room for that there is in the world
2: but all of that is that's the the meat of being a
5: writer
2: words and having a head full of words so is emptying your head of things of words a dangerous thing for a writer
5: Actually, I mean, that is something that he really gets into. So at one point in on one of his meditation retreats, he decides that he should no longer be a writer. But then when the retreat is over, he finds that what he wants to do is write. So um, he has a very interesting conversation with the sort of guru who's leading this retreat. And he said, oh, I think I should be a monk. I think I should, you know, stop writing. And the guru says to him, yes, many people seem to feel that they should be a monk. But he says, I also wrote a book. And, you know, it's not the best book, but books can be a useful way of describing things, expressing things. So I think what it's calling for is not to say, give up everything, sit in silence all the time, engage with the world. Why the hell not? But don't think that it's the be all and end all. Somehow, if words are at the very centre of your life, you're probably missing out on silence. Just like if... I don't know, if food is at the very centre of your life, you're probably missing out on, I don't know, some other thing. If sport is the centre of your life, you're missing out on something, you know? Like, whatever it is that you're resisting, let it, let it
2: what about more prosaically? I mean, being a, a writer sat at a desk oh. all day. I mean, I know it's not writing, but just having having an office job. I'm myself subject to various... The later in the day it gets subject to various little niggles and annoyances and, and unidentifiable pain. You know, does it reflect that in your in your own life on this book?
5: Oh, God, yes, definitely. I mean, you know, all writers get back pain. I've actually been like doing lots of exercises to try to prevent that. I think also... There's something about mm, like the actual writing is not so much the problem for me. It's the sitting at my desk when I'm not writing, either fiddling about on the Internet or just kind of staring blankly into space, trying to work things out. And then you end up like hunched forward. And God knows one of the first things Margaret Atwood ever said to me when we started talking was you must do back exercises because pain is very distracting. Uh, So I think probably a call for all of us to re-engage more with our bodies and stop thinking that we can be little brains on stalks is a wonderful call. I've just bought myself one of those little scooters you know not a Vespa one of those ones that you push along with your foot mm. because because it was just so enjoyable I had a had a go with the friends and it was just so enjoyable I thought yes why not enjoy my body as well as my brain
2: <laughs> so we're going to be able to see you scooting around the uh scooted around the streets like one of those shortage people
5: <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, yeah. It's it's basically that I'm just a total hipster. Um, and and meditation just goes along with that. It'll soon be making my own spelt bread.
2: <laughs> so what <laughs> happens to Tim Parks in the end then? How does the, um, as I said, it's the journey rather than the actual conclusion. So we can sort of give it away. What? How does he end up?
5: He gets to a brilliant conclusion. His pain is gone by the end and not having had to have surgery. He's managed to get rid of his pain by, or at least make it, completely possible so the pain is much reduced and when it comes he knows what to do by the end by doing vipassana meditation and sitting for hours at a time sometimes doing 10 day retreats to do for his meditation and yeah he gets to a brilliant brilliant place it's kind of wonderful it really inspired me to go and do more meditation Uh, maybe in the end I'll go and I'll go and do a vipassana retreat Uh, so listen this is this is a thing that he says about because for ages he had been saying that he felt that he wanted to stand up straight the whole way through like his spine has kind of got a weird curvature which is causing him pain and he says this this is towards the end of the book no longer much interested in standing up straight I found my back pulling upright by itself it happened over the spring Taking my familiar run across the hills, I was surprised to find myself aware of the muscles at the base of the spine. How odd. Days later, I could feel my shoulders. A slight warm presence. Finally, my neck. It was as if skeletal spaces had been very lightly penciled in. Becoming aware of the muscles turned out to be one with straightening them, or letting them straighten me. I didn't do anything. I just had to pay attention. The only difficult thing was getting used to seeing the world from a different angle. It's so like psychotherapy. It's exactly kind of magnetically aligned with it, which is to say the thing to do is just to bring something into awareness. And once it's in awareness, you don't do anything else. Like once you go, oh, I'm behaving with my boss the same way that I always behave with my dad. Like that's it. (laughs) You don't have to then go, oh God, now I need to really work on it. Once you've noticed it once you've brought it into awareness it will start to sort itself out it's a miracle so yeah i love that stuff i'm in a real phase at the moment actually of reading a lot of psychotherapy uh, memoirs and sort of memoirs of people's like internal journeys so goodness knows what that means either i'll be going on an internal journey or i'll be writing a novel about one
2: <laughs> we'll look forward to that then. <laughs> so i've been talking to naomi alderman and we've been talking about "Teach to sit still by tim park so naomi thank you very much for sharing it with us
5: it's been a delight i can highly recommend this book to everybody
3: You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denning and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89 Up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find
0: old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.